0: So you remember when you were younger, you would sit in the doctor's office or the dentist's office, and they had those highlights magazines. Does anybody else remember those highlights magazines? Those were the thing, right? Something you would find in there, and something you might find other places too, like on the back of a cereal box or something like that, is the old spot the difference game. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where there's two pictures that basically look the same side by side with one another, uh, and you're supposed to tell the difference between the two. Uh, It'll it'll say somewhere there's five differences between these two pictures, found the five differences. And depending on what age group it's meant for, they could be really easy to spot, or they could be a little more nuanced, or it's a little harder to spot. Uh, If you can remember those games, you can remember uh, learning and and, and enjoying those things, but you probably didn't know it. You were developing an essential skill to tell the difference between two things. Uh, A skill that is needed to know something that's true from something that's false, uh, not that any of you are involved in looking at the difference between real and counterfeit money, but that's one of those ways that skill is needed. To know when something's real and to know when something is not real. Uh, we see that in our lives as well. Um, we see that in the way that we operate with people. We want to know who we can trust and whom we probably shouldn't trust to spot the difference. So Corbin, my oldest and I, got to play that game by accident this week because we ordered some uh, Pokemon cards, didn't we, that turned out, well, I'll tell you the story. We ordered some Pokemon cards. He's into Pokemon cards like a lot of kids his age. They do a lot of trading. It's one of those things that's coming back. Um, And so we ordered a bunch online from Amazon. I got a really good deal on Amazon. And you're not going to believe this, but did you know that there are people who will sell you fake stuff on the internet? I don't know if you knew that or not, uh, but it's true. It happens. Uh, And Corbin was actually the first one to spot it because he noticed the difference on the back of the card, uh, it looking different than the rest of them. And I was like, ah, buddy, I'm sure it's fine. It has the same copyright date on it. Everything's spelled correctly, nothing's blurry. Sure enough, I looked on Google and they have like, here's how you figure out whether a Pokemon card. So so if you don't learn anything else this morning, I'm gonna tell you the difference, how to tell the difference between a real Pokemon card and a fake one, because I know that's what you came here to hear this morning. And the real difference is for a real card, there are two white layers with one little bitty black layer in between. None of the, rest of the cards have that. That's the most surefire way. So you're welcome, price of admission is paid. Um, but anyway, we started looking at his different cards. He, he got one he knew was real. Sure enough, the black layer's there. Started looking at the others, they weren't there. So I went back online to leave a review on Amazon because that's what you do in our modern age when you're upset. I uh, went online to uh, leave a review and that listing didn't exist anymore. Couldn't find anything else for that, that seller. You know how that goes. Uh, so they got away with it. So we have um, some really good Pokemon cards if anybody wants to trade with Corbin. There's some really awesome ones. But it's important to know how to spot the difference. The same with us and our walk. There ought to be a difference in the way that we walk in this world compared to the rest of the world. There ought to be something about us that people can look at us, look at the rest of the world, and note something obviously different. Something qualitatively different about the kind of men and women we are compared to the rest of the world. It's kind of what Jesus is dealing with in his conversation or in his message to the church in Pergamon that we're going to read this morning from Revelation chapter 2. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to blend in like I know a lot of people did when they were kids. You want to be popular. You want to fit in. Uh, in some respects during our childhood pursuit, our teenage, especially pursuits, that might have been the most important thing for us at times. Making sure we were in the in crowd. Then we weren't standing out too much. Now you wanted to stick out a little bit, and you know, you wanted to do things well and achieve, but you also wanted to be a part of a group. Now there's good in that. We all want to be a part of a team, we all want to be a part of a family, group of friends, a group of fellow believers. Being a part of a group is an essential part of what it means to be human and to follow God's calling. I ultimately believe. But when that becomes the primary value to fit in, it can become problematic. That's a little bit about what we see in Pergamon. So this morning. What I want you to take away from this is not the thing about the Pokemon cards, but this instead. Be weird and follow Jesus. Be weird, be strange, be peculiar in a world where normal is really kind of weird if we're being honest. Let us be weird and follow Jesus. Before we open the scripture and pray this morning, or before we open the scripture this morning and read, let's pray together once more. Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. God, we thank you that you are always the same, that you never change, that you are always good and true. God, I thank you that we can lean on you, lean on your understanding and not our own, and know that when we lean on you, we will never falter. God, I praise your name for that reality. God, as your good, true, unchanging spirit is here with us this morning, God, I pray that you would remove the distraction and chaos that comes from the change and stance in our own life, so that we might focus solely on what you have for us this morning. God, I pray that you would, through your good and perfect word, implant your truth within us and do a work of transformation from the inside out. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum. If the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum, another one of the seven cities in Asia Minor that the letter of revelation is delivered to. It's not as economically important as Ephesus, but it is seen as the Roman capital in Asia Minor, home to various pagan shrines, including an altar to Zeus, an honor to Asclepius, the Greek god of healing, also home to the imperial shrine of the Roman Emperor Augustus, one of the first imperial shrines. This is probably one of the reasons why Jesus refers to Pergamum as Satan's throne. There's a lot of worldly religion and pagan practices that happened there. As far as Asia was concerned, Pergamum is the heart of Roman political power. And along with the imperial worship, worship of the emperors came the pagan banquets, complete with sacrifices and all kinds of sexual immorality, immorality in general. Rome's power is also evident over Christians in this community, just like it was in Smyrna, with martyrdom being a real thing that Christians had to face when they would practice their faith openly. Antipas is mentioned in the scripture itself that we just read, being martyred for his beliefs. According to tradition, Antipas met his end by being murdered by the emperor Domitian via a bronze bull. Now, bronze bull, that might not mean anything to any of you. It's one of those Roman creations that are just, you wonder, how can someone be so depraved? Uh, it was one way that they tortured and killed people. Uh, they would stick someone in a metal bull. There would be an opening. They would stick someone in it, close the bull, and then they would put it over a fire, and it would heat until the person died. Uh, and the reason why they put them in a bull is because the the the... the the nose, the holes in the nose would be open, and as the person screamed while they were in excruciating pain, it would sound like the bull was bellowing. Romans were a creative people, a darkly creative people, capable of much evil, and much of that evil came off the church when they would resist this imperial worship, when they would resist just going along with the flow and being a part of the crowd that Rome was calling them to be. In many ways, then, Pergamum is similar to Smyrna that we talked about last week, undergoing this severe kind of persecution. However, maybe some of that is past. Uh, John or Jesus through John talks about the days of Antipas as if, as if they're in the past. Either way, these Christians were acquainted with what it meant to follow Jesus with a great cost, just like the Smyrna's last week. But unlike the Smyrna's last week, they have some word against them. Jesus has uh, some correction for them. Now, he starts by describing himself as the one with the two-edged sword. Uh, We see, go back to chapter one, we see the vision of Jesus. Uh, We see he being the one with the two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, being, of course, representative of his word, but also of his power and ability to judge. Regardless of how much power, legal, political, otherwise, that Rome had in Pergamum and throughout Asia Minor, Jesus reminds his followers yet again that he is the ultimate judge and authority. The believers of Pergamum were holding fast to their faith in Jesus, despite being in the middle of a dangerous culture, a culture so depraved that John, or Jesus through John, called it Satan's throne. They refused to deny Jesus even when their leader, Antipas, was martyred. Again, they have a bit of Smyrna in them. But the corrections for them. There was some teaching, there was some belief, there was some immorality that was going against what they were standing up for, what some of them were willing to die for. John depicts some of them as holding to the teaching of Balaam. Got to go back to the Old Testament numbers to find the teaching of Balaam. According to Numbers 31, 16, Balaam advised the Moabites to have their women intermarry with Israel's men, which was against the plan of God, who would then be enticed to worship Moabite gods, which happened, the Israel men fell for it. It led to idolatry and a deadly plague. In other words, in Pergamum, there was someone or some ones leading the Christians away by tempting them with the immorality of the age and culture around them, using their lusts against them to have them commit acts of idolatry and worship of, the, of, of something other than the one true God. It leads them, in, uh, back in the Old Testament, it them to eat, need sacrifice to idols to commit all kinds of sexual immorality, and that's what's basically going on here in Pergamum. You see, when you when you bend your ethics, a break isn't far away. We have to be careful how we live in this world, and there are times when we have to use wisdom, and, and eating meat sacrificed to idols is one thing that is brought up uh, here in this uh, in this message to Pergamum. But we have that talked about elsewhere in Scripture. Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 uh, talks about how Christians can walk in that, and that they should live in freedom and shouldn't be legalistic shouldn't hold it over someone's head if they do eat meat sacrificed to idols that was probably along the idea of someone who was in the marketplace and bought meat and wasn't for sure whether or not it was used in some pagan practice and, and paul was basically saying you don't have to be so legalistic uh, that you are always beating yourself up and not allowing yourself to live in christian freedom you know there's only one true god so even if that meat happened to be sacrificed To an idol you know that 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 there's only one god really anyway and so you worship your god you do what's right by your god and then don't don't be so legalistic about things but what's being talked about here is probably meat open meat eaten like in the presence of the gods themselves while it's being sacrificed and someone diving in uh not worried about legalism but instead asking the opposite question saying how close can i get how far can i go Without offending God. That's a, that's a, that's a popular question in our age, isn't it? How far is too far? Like, where do I draw the line in my behavior? What, what can I get away with that's fun, that's enjoyable, that's worldly without offending God? W- without doing something wrong? Uh, it, 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 it's like especially as teenagers i remember asking that question we still do it as adults though right well we ask the question of like i i just want to do what i want to do i want to do what's fun i want to do what's enjoyable i want to fit in i want to go along with the rest of the crowd and and you know god just tell me if i've gone too far or give me a big sign uh, that says that i've gone too far but until then i'm just gonna I'm, i want to know how close i can get to the edge without really crossing over the line. And if I, can, if I can be a little bit over the edge, but still have most of my weight on solid ground, then, then I'll do that too. But but I just want to know how far I can go. But in reality, we ought to be asking how far we can go into Christ. Not being worried about uh, but the opposite side at all or about what the world tells us is fun and enjoyable, but instead taking joy in what we have in Christ and running fully to Him, be willing to say no like we talked about last week to the things of the world. When you bend your ethics, a break isn't very far away. We have to be careful when we get into that gray area. We see sexual morality and all kinds of immorality went hand in hand with the pagan ceremonies and parties. We see it in this group that John talks about, the Nicolaitans. Their teaching had taken root as well. This is probably a group of people who saw themselves as followers of Jesus but wanted to dive into the immorality of the world around them. Probably teaching something along the lines of, you could follow Jesus while still doing all of these other things. This is uh, along the lines of probably the same kind of message that Paul would give to the Corinthians on multiple occasions. Uh, A group of people who wanted to live like the world, but still view themselves and call themselves Christians and believers while not being any different than the world around them. So the sin then of the Christians in Pergamum, the Pergamums, is what I'm going to call them, was one of assimilation into the culture. It was a little too hard to spot the difference, if you will. The difference between the world and the people of God. See, the difference of the world, the difference between the world and the people of God should not only be noticeable, it should be obvious. It should be like one of those spot the difference games for like the youngest child imaginable, right? Something that they can see easily, not something we have to study. Are you, you know, are you really a a Christian? Now, I was thinking about this in the first service. When we introduce ourselves to someone, uh, what does that conversation usually look like? I know for a man, what it usually looks like, the men that I introduce myself to, is uh, what we do for a living. It's usually how we introduce ourselves, right? Our name followed by, here's what I do. Because, right, you know, there's, that's a whole t- other topic, but a lot of what we do, what we do as men defines us, at least we think so. And so that's how we introduce ourselves, and I do that often. I'm Corey, I'm the pastor at First Baptist Church in Grandview. Some of you other fellows out there might do that, some of you ladies out there might do that. Uh, it could be a very common thing just throughout humanity today, is uh, identifying ourselves by what we do. Some others might identify themselves by whom they're connected to, right? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm Corey, I'm Cheryl's husband. I'm, I'm Corbin Cannon and Kai's father. Uh, I'm, I'm my, my parents' son. And we might introduce ourselves in that way if we know there's another connection to someone out there that they're connected to, that we're connected to. But I wondered, like, would it be weird? Would it be weird? I'm just asking. I just thought this this morning during the first service. Would it be weird if when you introduce yourself to someone, it, it sounded something like this, hi, my name is Corey, I'm a Jesus follower. And then you can fill in the blanks with the rest of yourself. Like, wouldn't it be weird if we're being honest with ourselves, the question, the answer to that question is yes. I know mean, that's a rhetorical question, uh, In order to inspire thought, right? That's what rhetorical questions are for. But really, the answer to that question is yes. That'd be a little strange in our world. That'd uh, be a little out of the ordinary because, well, there's just some things you don't talk about in polite society, all right? You don't talk about politics, religion, and her. That's a country song, I think. But you don't talk about politics and religion for sure. You just don't talk about those things. Unless, of course, you're behind the safety of your computer screen and you're typing something badly on Facebook, then you can say whatever you want to. But when you're face-to-face with someone, you don't talk about those things. So, why is it so weird? Like, why is that not, or let me ask it this way, is that not the most important thing about us? That we are a follower of Jesus Christ? So maybe we lead with that. I don't know, just a thought. Maybe the next time you introduce yourself to somebody, maybe you can start with that. You don't have to uh, I know our world sees even the mention of religion is judgmental. I'm not telling you to go up to someone and say, Hi, I'm Corey, you're going to hell if you don't believe what I believe. I'm not telling you to say that, eh, You know, that's the wrong way to move forward. What I'm telling you is to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And you don't even have to say anything else. Just let it hang out there. Watch the surprise on their face. It'll be awesome as they wonder what that means. Maybe somebody will have the guts to ask you, Okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? And you can tell them what following Jesus actually looks like. That it's not about legalism. That it's not about judgmentalism. uh, That it's about living in freedom. That it's about living in love. uh, That it's about uh, having a a quality of life both here and in eternity that is different than what the world has to offer. Maybe maybe that's an idea the next time you meet someone. The difference between the world and the people of God should not only be noticeable, it should be obvious. And if it's not, Jesus offers this warning for the church in Pergamum. Repent, or else I will judge you with the sword of my mouth. Meaning him being the one with a double-edged sword. Which is, of course, symbolic for the word of God. It's That way throughout the New Testament, God will judge with his word. He will speak truth, and that truth will judge the right from the wrong. His word demands authority. Again, in a world where everything else seems authoritative, Jesus himself, through his word, is the sole authority. But to the one who changes, to the one who follows, to the one who conquers, he gives this promise. Hidden manna. My Hidden manna, that's a weird promise. Remember, manna was what God gave the Israelites in the wilderness while they were wandering because of their own sinfulness, because of their own doubt of God's plan and God's goodness. Wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, crying out for mercy, crying out for food, and he would deliver manna to them every evening and would gather for food. It's a picture of God's sustenance about how God provides for us in all circumstances. But here's something else. Remember I told you that one of the ways that the Pergamums were likely stepping out of line or, or being tempted at least to step out of line and, and assimilate into the culture was by the worshiping of other gods and participating in the banquets to the other gods. These banquets that would often turn into lavish and depraved kind of situations where all kinds of ungodliness was occurring. Um, what we're hearing here, what, what we're seeing presented to the one who conquers, who will get the hidden manna, that's better than the other manna, it's a new kind of man. it's a hidden manna that God gives, is that God's banquets are better. Like he throws throws better parties. He has better meals. You know who else uh, the world throws parties? You know who else talks about parties? And I love to talk about this. I've talked about it before. It's of course Jesus who several times throughout the Gospels compares the kingdom of God to a wedding feast, to a wedding party. That he himself, being the bridegroom, is going to one day come and bring the bride home and there's going to be what? A party. There's going to be a festival. There's going to be a banquet. He calls it that on multiple occasions. That he's going to go out and invite people from the highways and the byways. Those who don't think they belong are going to be invited to be a part of this kingdom party, of this wedding feast to the Lord. It is better than anything that the world has to offer. So if we're asking ourselves, how far can I get into the world while still being Christian? Man, we're missing the point. Do you not know what goodness God has to offer? Running holy to God is the option. It's being so, so, so focused on God, so preoccupied with God that we don't even have time to stop and think about what the world has to offer because God is so much better. We're not going to be looking for another well because we are drinking fully from the water from which we will never thirst again when we drink it. From the truth of God that we are so deeply committed to it that everything else is obviously fake and we're not going to run there. To the conqueror goes hidden manna and to the conqueror goes again a wonderful thought a hidden white stone with a new name written on it. A new name that only the person who gets it knows about. There's a lot of like stuff that might seem at first glance scary and frightening in the book of Revelation. There are some passages that are just utterly beautiful. And the idea of Christ giving to us a new white pure stone with a new name on it. I, I, I love the study of names. I love to know what people's names mean. It's one of my favorite things to do in the Old Testament is that when names are just listed, think about what that name meant in the Hebrew. That name in the original language was the parent or God trying to say something about this person by the name that they gave them. Something in a name. It happens especially when God would interact with people both in the Old and New Testament When God would would say, you're no longer Paul, I'm going to name you Saul. You're no longer, uh, uh, you are Peter the rock upon which I will build my church. You're no longer Simon, you are Peter. And it's beautiful when God intervenes and does that. Israel is your new name, Jacob. Something different about you. I'm giving you something new, something different. What Jesus is telling us by this is that he is the one that gives us identity. Not anything in the world. And if we're looking to fit into the world, we are selling ourselves short. Of the identity of the one who actually created us can give us. I don't know about you, but that that, that scripture just, it it takes me out for a second in a good way. Because I wonder like, what is my rock going to say? What name is Jesus going to give me in that day? You're not going to know about it. You don't need to know about it. Because it's between me and him forever. And I don't have to fit in other places. As a matter of fact, I get to stick out with this white stone hanging around my neck. It's the way I view it. Identifying me as a child of God. Identifying me as one who is known and created by the one true God. Our identity is with Christ and not the world be weird. Follow Jesus. Like those in Pergamum, there is a fine line to walk between being in the world but not of it. We can see that in obvious battles in our quote-unquote culture wars today. That we, as believers, as followers of Christ, stand up for the value of life in all cases. That we stand up for the definition of love, marriage, and family. That we stand up Uh, It's other types of immorality that go on in the world around us. Those are the obvious things that a lot of people talk about. But what about the not so obvious thing? What about the things that are hot button issues that identify us, that separate us, that set us apart from the rest of the world? Is is there something about the way that we manage our money that's different than the rest of the, the way the rest of the world does? Are we driven by greed and avarice? and ambition like the rest of the world or are we driven by generosity like christ calls us to be even with the dollars and cents in our bank accounts are we driven by the lust for power like the world is again that idea of ambition i want to achieve i want to make a name for myself are we like those who built the tower of babel trying to reach heaven by our own might so that we might be known by the world around us or are we resting in the name that god has given us Are we not going after power but resting alone in his power and not looking for it on our own? Are we comparing ourselves to others around us, even those within the church trying to be as godly or as popular or as wealthy or as fun, as pretty, as social media acceptable as the people around us? Are we idolizing those who live those kind of lives that, oh, seem so much fun in the world? We don't do that in the church, right? That's just the world that has celebrities. Come on, give me a break. We do it all the time in the church. Uh, anytime that there's a semi-famous person in the world that identifies as a Christian, it's like we as the church run with a giant pedestal to put them up on so that they can, oh, here's a famous Christian, as if that somehow gives the Christian faith more credence because there's somebody who has a lot of likes and clicks and followers online that believes in Jesus now. Oh, we believe, you believe in Jesus, so now it's okay again to believe in Jesus. You know what? It's okay if we're on the fringes. It's okay if we're, we're not the norm. It's actually a good thing to not be there. But we do that all the time. Not only that, we do it within the church by people who are already Christians. We want to put worship leaders on pedestals. We want to put pastors, megachurch pastors and normal church pastors on pedestals to be like the paragons of what it means to be Christians. And what happens every time we do that, almost without fail, they fall off the pedestal because they're human beings. And because we have put them on the pedestal, something rattles inside us as well because we have put Faith somewhere in something besides God Himself. There is only one throne, and there is only one who sits on it, and His name is Jesus. Everyone else, spoiler alert, at the end will be on the same level at the foot of that throne, singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come for eternity. On the same level, sinner and saint, all on the same level before God for eternity. Do we honor God with the words that come out of our mouths? You can make this as simple as, well, the preacher's saying don't use dirty words, but there's more than that. Do we honor God with the way we speak about our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we honor God with the way we speak about the lost? Do we honor God with the way we speak about those with whom we disagree in a world full of disagreement? Are we building up with our words or are we tearing down? Look at James, read that book, you get a chance. Words are very powerful. Are we looking to bring hope and faith and love to people of all kinds, even those that are outcast according to our worldly ways, even those who are the least of these? Are we pushing people to the side as well? There are so many different ways than just the big issues in our world that we can stand up and stand out for Christ. We represent the truth, not ourselves, which means that we must stand for that truth, not ourselves. Just like with Ephesus, there is a time to be right, but we must do so with love. See, Ephesus and Pergamum, the first church and the third one, are almost on opposite ends of the spectrum. Ephesus, they hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They stood against the unrighteousness of the world, but they lost their first love, and they needed to be reminded of that. The Pergamums—they're they're standing fast as well, but they're starting to sway. They're starting to step into worldliness. They're starting to dilute their witness with their behavior. There's some temptation of that ruining their witness in that area. We must believe in and follow and teach what is right, and also do what is loving. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, and it bears repeating. When the world lies to us and says you either are righteous or you're loving and you can't be both, let us reject that lie. We can't be righteous and follow the God of truth and stand up for truth while also being loving and not judgmental and not a jerk about it. Because we can stand up for truth and what's right and tell people, I'm telling you what's true and what's right, not because I hate you, not because I want to judge you, but because I want you to live a life of freedom from sin and all that it can do to jack up your life. Let us be both loving and champions of the truth. We can be both. The same message is there for Pergamon. Are you willing to be weird for Jesus' sake? To stick out like the proverbial sore thumb? Are you willing to do that? For the sake of Christ. I'm not saying go be weird on purpose. Just to be weird. I'm saying are you willing to follow Christ. Even when it is weird. Because here's the thing folks. In an upside down world. Righteous living. Is weird. In a hate filled world. Living according to the law of love. Is weird. In a world that teaches everything as relative, choose for yourself, the belief in absolute truth is weird. You're pretty strange. Let us glory in that, because that's what we're called to be. Not fit in to the rest of this world. We are called to fit in in heaven, which means we're not going to fit in to this world we don't do that in a combative way or in a pat myself on the back, I'm holier than thou kind of way. Instead, we do that sacrificially. Being willing to lay down our pride, lay down our comfort, lay down our desire to fit in so that we can believe in and follow truth in all circumstances and rescue others who have bought into the lie so that they too may live in truth. The one who overcomes will be the hidden manna, the party that's greater than anything the world has to offer. In that new name, your identity in Christ, that only you will know. I wonder what mine will be. I wonder what yours will be. It'll probably sound weird to our human ears, and I'm here for it. Be weird. Follow Jesus. This morning, as we enter into our final time of worship and response, I want to throw the invitation out there, if anyone that is here or hearing these words has never experienced what it means to know, believe in, be saved by Jesus, today could be the opportunity where you could do that. You can ask Jesus to save you. you, commit your life to him for eternity, you'd be weird for the right reasons. If you want to do that, I'm here to talk with you while we're singing these last two songs. I'll be down there at the front. We'll also, hang around after the service if you would like to talk then uh, a little more privately. If you're joining us online, just send us a message on Facebook. We'll have somebody reach out if you want to have a conversation. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, in what area of your life is Christ calling you to be a little more weird in Stick out a little more for his namesake. In what areas of your life are you worried that people might not be able to spot the difference? And what is Christ wanting to do in you to rectify that? Let's pray and think on those things. Again, I'll be down here to pray with you while we're singing. The altar will be open if you want to come and kneel at the stairs. You can certainly pray right where you're at, with someone around you. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to sing. Please respond however God's leading you to. Father, again, we thank you for being here with us. We thank you for your truth and your power and your grace that are all present here with us this morning. God, I pray that if anyone here does not know you, God, that you would convict and give them courage to seek out and call on your name and be saved, to reach out to someone who can have that conversation with them. God, those of us who do follow you and believe in you as Savior, God, Would you clarify to us where in our lives it's hard to spot the difference? Help us have the courage and show us where we can be weird in your name. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.